I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all those people who donated to Marathon Mates, a fundraiser for Royal National Institute of the Blind, that saw Derek and I run a half marathon each. We raised £450 at the time of this recording. Thank you. On with the show. Welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting user experience of devices and services in the home, car, and on the go. I'm Lisa Cooper, and as always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients all over the world with insights, analysis, and expertise. Last week, we looked at education from a parent's perspective. But good UX research involves looking at all users and stakeholders in a new product, service or process. So today, we're speaking with two educators, one from a high school, the other from a college, to get their unique perspectives and experiences at a time of forced distance learning. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our two special guests today. We have Renee on the line, a Dean of Students at a school district with 40,000 students, Welcome, Renee. Hello. And also Chris. He is a psychology professor at a technical college that also serves about 40,000 students. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks. So today I'll be asking you both about the challenges you now face in what are truly unprecedented times in education. Renee, let's start with you. Could you tell me very briefly about your role as a dean of a high school for anyone out there who may be unfamiliar? Sure. It's kind of like an assistant principal. Some of my duties are like I'm in charge of assessments, discipline, attendance. I'm also in charge of technology on campus. So that covers everything from I'm the Google guru. (laughs) I do all the trainings for teachers and students. But I also manage the distribution of our technology to students and to teachers. And I'm kind of the central person for that. And Chris, could you tell me a little bit uh, about your roles and responsibility as a psychology professor? Sure. Um. At a technical college, primarily my role is teaching. So we have a set of courses that we have to teach pretty consistently. Uh, I teach both face-to-face and online. Not teaching face-to-face right now um, and not in the building, so I'm working from home. Other responsibilities we have, I'm the chair of our adjunct support committee, so helping the psychology department's adjuncts when onboard those people as they come in, answer questions, help provide some professional development and mentoring for them. I'm a member of our scheduling committee, so we also are about scheduling our faculty when the semester schedule comes out and making sure everyone gets scheduled. Uh, those are a couple of my service duties at the college as well. So, Have you had any challenges with doing this from home? I think the biggest challenge for me right now is finding boundaries and time. I'm sitting in the basement at the moment. Yes. <laughs> While my partner works in the office uh, doing telehealth and uh, my kids are running rampant wherever they are. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you have to find very quiet places with two children. Yes. And that's part of the reason I didn't choose to volunteer to do online live classes. So all my classes are asynchronous at this time, which is very helpful. And that's, for something, managing that. that's something you had a choice about or is this something you requested? That's something we had some choice about. They asked for people to take on the online live classes as a sort of special offering, knowing that our student populations might be more amenable to that, that that might be more helpful to them. But they asked who would be willing to do it. And I just knew with my schedule and situation that wasn't going to be possible. 
So, Renee, do you also do asynchronous classes at your high school? Are they a mixture of live? What is your situation where you are? It is a mix of live and students on their own. So students had a choice at the beginning of the school year to go to a fully online academy where they had to self-pace and manage really their own education, their own teaching. Of course, there's a teacher there grading and therefore assistance, but they truly were kind of managing it themselves. Uh, here on campus, the students who chose to stay, they work in a, co a combination where they have every day a live meet with the teacher and all the students. And then they also have assignments that they're given. Now, the first couple of weeks, we require that the students go to the meet in order to get marked present. However, you cannot require a student to be present at a certain time at a certain day in this situation. We have a lot of students who are working full time because their parents have lost their jobs or um, taking care of their siblings because the younger siblings aren't in school either. So we had to make it more flexible. So we had to allow optional participation assignments if they miss the meet. And then the feedback we got from that was that it still was too restrictive. So we have meets every day. Every day, every teacher does a live meet anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. We have block classes of two hours and then they alternate schedules. And so the students that can make it during that time, great. But what's, what's hard is the teachers want to be with the students. They want to see them and they want to give content and valuable information. But you can't give primary content in a meet where not every student is required to be there. So it can only be supplemental, which, which was such a huge change for these teachers that have spent their entire lives and teaching careers in one particular method. So it, it was a, a struggle at first, but I would say within the month, oh my gosh, everyone has just been doing great. And, and Chris, what's your experience been doing the asynchronous classes? I've been teaching online for a long time, so I think since roughly around 2007. When the emergency stuff happened, that was more about adjusting my face-to-face -face classes to the online environment. As an experienced instructor in online, I gave them a clear message. It'll be okay. I know how to do this. We'll be good. And much like Renee was saying, we couldn't require them to come. I mean, most of them had schedules. You know, they had blocked out for time for face-to-face -face classes. And But Many of them were in situations where that wasn't going to be possible. So I made those optional, um, our class meetings optional, and recorded those class meetings and then put them out for them to, to access only just for the students in the class, which some of them did say they watched and watched them later and found them very helpful. And now um, all I chose intentionally to go all asynchronous. And so that's been really helpful with our scheduling here. Wait, can I jump in um, and mention something about yeah. the recording the live meets. So we, at the beginning, of, at the end of last quarter, fourth quarter, when everything shut down, our teachers really wanted and started using that as a valuable resource tool for students who maybe couldn't make it to the meet or um, were having an issue and wanted wanted to be able to record it and have it as documentation because, you know, high schoolers are going to jump on as soon as they're in front of a camera, in front of all their friends, they start to do inappropriate things. So teachers wanted to be able to record that. Um, however, we quickly learned that's a violation of the Child Protection Act to then, for children under the age of 18 to be recorded and then shared. So wow. here's, it took a while for us to work out those rules and regulations. So if it, a teacher can record the screen, but they have to download it, keep it in a separate folder that's not online so that no one else can access it. They cannot share it with anyone. And that's also a, a glitch that we figured out that if they put it in a folder, like a like a folder just for the resource, students learned how to manipulate that URL code and share it with other people. 
So even though it's within our locked down Google school classroom account that you can only access if you have a school account, those smart kids figured out how to record and share those recordings with other people. And they also have figured out how to jump into meetings. My son, he told me about how they all bombed his AP physics class with over 120 students. So during the live meet, what? they all figured out how to get, because they love the teacher and they, they were doing it for fun. And they had 150 kids jumping in there, even though he had a private code, only shared the link with kids in the class, they figured out how to do it. So you're, as a teacher, you're very hesitant to jump on these live meets and to do, you know, any of these awesome things you can do, like record and use it because someone's going to take advantage of that in some way. I have heard that some of these Google Meets have been interrupted by, let's say, inappropriate material. Have you come across that also? That, that has happened in our district once it wasn't an international hacker. It was someone who was hacking into, I think, when, when we were still using Zoom. Okay, So that's one of the reasons why Zoom was not used anymore. But there also were small glitches. Talk about user experience. Glitches like when you first set up a Zoom class and you share that link with people, you don't, you don't know that you have to go into the settings and click the one box that says only the teacher or the administrator has can share this link or has access to allow people to enter the room or not. It defaulted to let anybody in. So by the time we figured that out, oh, there were violations all over the place. And try figuring that out remotely, not being able to sit down with a group of people and discuss what's going on. It's all right. happening through email and phone calls. It was a hot mess. I could imagine. Yeah. I have the opposite problem when I was doing live classes is that no one wanted to turn on their camera <laughs> and they didn't want to talk for the most part. So it turned into a pseudo, pseudo me talking at a screen to myself. Well, and we talk about equity issues like should we require a student to turn on their camera so we can visually see them? And it's not equitable to require a student to turn right. on their camera. What if they're embarrassed about where they live or, you know, we don't require them to turn on their cameras. Yeah. Yeah. We had that same conversation um, in discussing at least among our faculty, but I know at the colleges in some of the training sessions of helping people to sort of realize that those issues are there and to try to find alternative ways for that student to participate without having to turn on the camera. So let's talk a little bit about training. When COVID hit, how much training did you both receive with these online platforms? Platforms that I'm sure many teachers and academics were not used to using. The college as a whole went above and beyond trying to prepare our faculty for this situation. So there was some stuff around Microsoft Teams that I went to. Then they had things like more how to use some of the tools built into the Blackboard course management system. Our psychology department regularly had like a once a month, actually about every two weeks, had a sort of meeting of how are we dealing with this <laughs> together That's kind of good, little yeah. uh, faculty meeting, which was also very helpful. So we did a lot. Uh, our, the college did an amazing job of stepping up uh, to, to prepare. I mean, we have we have faculty who have been with us for a long time, some of whom, you know, using email is a struggle. Um, and so for them to have to go to teaching all online uh, requires a lot of support and a lot of help. And it's been amazing to see that come together. Renee? I've been teaching for 20 years. And over the past year and a half, my principal chose me and a couple other people on campus to go to the Google Guru training. I created a resource. I created a Google Classroom just for our faculty. 
where they could ask questions. I could give documents, uh, share those instructional videos, also so that they could separate the classroom student user experience and teacher resource from district mandatory instructional information and general daily things we have to do like a bell schedule and when is lunch and you know those kind of things so that google classroom has been a really great resource for teachers and that that was a really a place that they would go to we did we did something a little similar for the psychology department just as a whole is that as we as a department were finding things and people were trying out different tools Um, We put those into a Blackboard course for our uh, adjunct faculty to use as well. So that little different approach, but same sort of idea. Mm -hmm. Renee, are you using the same platform across all the schools within the district? In, In March and before that, we had teachers who were using Blackboard or some other, like it was kind of a use what you feel comfortable with. And then in April, when we didn't come back, it was a streamline. Everyone's using Google Classroom 100%. But we shut down due to the pandemic right in the middle of our spring break. So teachers didn't have resources. Like they still had in their classroom all of their documents. How do you then upload to your Google Classroom that you've just started if you don't have any of your documents? They're all sitting on your desktop computer at school. Right. Or how does an art teacher plan on teaching her art class if she doesn't have any tools at home? So you had 30 minutes to run into your classroom, get what you needed and get out. And, um, and, and again, I'm really lucky that I already was 100%. I'd been using Google Classroom for two years already, so I was good. But there were a lot of, a lot of teachers that it was, their, it was their first rollout. And while the district would send out information, valuable information, do's and don'ts, in order to really understand it, you have to see it. But also something that wasn't provided was what about the student side? If a teacher gives an assignment, what does it look like for the student? So that when a student asks the teacher, hey, I uploaded my document, but it's saying I didn't turn it in, the teacher has no idea what it looks like from their end. So I would get my son's computer next to mine because he is in the district and was in Google Classroom also. I'd record his screen and simultaneously give him an assignment. I made a pretend family Google Classroom. And... And then would record both and then piece them together in iMovie and make it a video. Hey, this is what it looks That's like smart, yeah. for the teacher and then the student. And then I even did a pretend Google Meet and then had my other son pretend to hack in. And then I would walk through the steps about, okay, teachers, he was able to get in when this happened. Don't do this. You know, so <laughs> That is some amazing troubleshooting. <laughs> yeah, that you did a phenomenal job there. Thanks. I just figured it, these are issues that are going to come up. Let's solve them now. So what kind of training and help was given to students when this all first happened? Our systems are working pretty well. While they really did a great job with training and providing lots of training for faculty, they also tried to do that for students. Especially over the summer, they tried to create some like resource pages where students could find kind of a one shop, like everything you could possibly need technology-wise. And that was actually run through our library our library system. So our librarians have been an amazing job of putting together those resources for students um, and being available to help kind of troubleshoot stuff for students. Many of our faculty kind of learn how to navigate some of that. So I'm sort of the first line of defense if a student has a problem. And then if I don't get it, then I'm like, I direct them to that spot so that they can get some additional resources that way. 
I just ran into a situation where I have a student. She's never really used an online system for learning. And and I spent, I'm not even joking, two, probably two and a half hours on a video call with her trying to walk her through how the class is set up, where everything is. And she was, I think, information overloaded. Her group in the online class has been making videos to help her. Um, And I was like, that's not fair to them. Um, And they let me, when, as soon as they let me know that, I was like, okay, we got to figure something else out. So I talked to our Student Achievement Center and the director there got in touch with me and put me in touch with some people that could sort of serve as technology tutors for this student who really just needs that extra help. So um, there are things that they've put into place, but you run into, I think, some of the same problems where if somebody's using one system and somebody's using another system and then you have different devices people are using, like no one person knows how to navigate all of those devices. And so sometimes it can feel like a runaround, I think, for the students. Well, why couldn't this person help me? Well, because they don't know use Macs or whatever. Like the other thing I think we're running into is the the proliferation of mobile stuff um, that students are trying to use a phone to take a test on Blackboard, for example, or whatever. And while it's increasingly becoming more mobile friendly, I think some things just don't work very well in that in that format. And so I've had to tell students, no, you that's not going to work on your iPad. It doesn't work very well. So if you can (laughs) find some way to do this. And normally in a usual world, I'd say, go to your local library, get on a desktop, get on a computer. Well, libraries are closed. So there've been little incidences of that. Well, I live in, well, the school is in a um, minority, you know, low socioeconomic uh, demographic area. So when I first wanted to make sure students that they had an avenue to first of all, ask questions, but then also have a resource. So I made a Google Sites for them, but then I was sure to translate it also to Spanish uh, on each page. Uh, I made a couple of Google Forms that I shared, created for teachers and shared in our Google Classroom that they could then share with their students so that they could ask questions. They asked the teachers directly and the teachers, I believe, were, were prepared enough to walk their students through those issues. I think they did great. If it was a bigger issue that seemed more a broader scale, like a student's password all of a sudden wasn't working or something like that, then they would forward that on to me. And then if I couldn't solve it, I forwarded it on to district. But, but usually we were able to solve those here on site. Have you experienced any other uh, UX issues with the interfaces that you are dealing with? Chris? You know, our, our college switched to the, some mobile navigation version of Blackboard, uh, as all this was going on, that was already planned before this happened. Um, and it's created lack of efficiencies for me as a faculty member. I mean, I had been using it for so long that I had found all kinds of little tricks and tips to like make things happen quickly and be really efficient in my workflows and changing that interface totally hosed it all. So while on the one hand, this idea of making it more mobile friendly has its advantages, I think there are times where that does not necessarily create real advantages for people who've kind of learned the system. It's just going to take time for me to get adjusted to that new platform, that new navigation system. Yeah. But that's time in it that, you know, right now, none of us has. Yeah. <laughs> so thinking about when do we deploy these things and how do we get in- input and feedback from people about how they're working or not? I mean, I think we had one training session about this new interface that I went to and I was like, okay. And then I had the summer I didn't teach all summer. 
And then I was like sat down to actually work on my class. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of a mess. And I kept like, closing out the browser. And I'm like, oh, what am I doing? A number of other faculty have really struggled with the new interface, especially when they first came, sat down to start, get their classes set up. And that gave me kind of a warning like, oh, this is going to be harder than I thought. Yeah. Oh. Yes, Renee, go ahead. Right now, um, other than I know there are the small group of teens and kids that are very tech savvy. But when someone says, oh, kids are tech savvy, they'll get it. No. If it's more than one or two clicks on an app on their phone, they are lost and they do not know how to troubleshoot beyond that. So even the vocabulary is unique. I will go back and forth with someone with a student over email where they say, I have emailed my teacher multiple times and asked questions and they're not replying. And we dig and dig and it ends up they made a comment, a public comment on a document within a Google Doc, and they think that they emailed the teacher. So those kind of vocabulary and processes, they have no idea the difference between those issues. When you turn in something, you upload something, it's not turned in. You still have to click turn in. So when all of a sudden you're getting all of these, I turned it in, why is it not marked? Well, you uploaded it, but you didn't click this extra button. Just because they're teenagers doesn't mean that they get it, that they just know computers and they know technology. No, they are still teenagers. Yeah, and I think sometimes having multiple ways of doing stuff leaves them even more confused. Because yeah. yeah. like you said, they don't know how to troubleshoot it. So then, you know, for me, I'm like, well, you could get there from this way or you can get there from that way or you could do it this way. And sometimes I put those things in there intentionally to make it easier, mm -hmm. but sometimes it feels more confusing to people, I think. And, and then they have more trouble because they think this is the only way I can do it because they're so used to one click this, one click that, one click this, it all happens that they're not used to having, you know, nested folders, say in a, in a Blackboard site or whatever. You have to go into this folder and then into this folder and then into this one. They just say, I can't find it. I have been amazed at how Teachers and administrators and staff have really pulled together at my school and then looking at other people I know that I've talked to um, at, you know, in secondary school, you know, elementary schools, how much work everybody has pulled together to try and make this the best that they can in what is an awful situation for everyone. They're being so creative and, and making it work. Yeah. yeah, they are. And I know we really appreciate all the efforts that they're taking, all the teachers are taking in the school district for our own daughter, coming up with new and creative ways to teach these, these different subjects. I want to thank both Renee and Chris for their time today, providing us with invaluable insights into the challenges that educators are facing right now during uh, what is a difficult time. If you'd like to receive updates from our recent research, head over to ux-soup.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. At ux-soup.com, you can also listen to older episodes, link to the show on your favorite podcast platform, and connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can also email Chris, Derek, and myself directly with your questions or feedback at uxsoup at strategyanalytics.com. As always, UX Soup has been brought to you by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-centered insights and analysis by visiting sa-ux.com. Thanks again. Bye for now. Thank you.